The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. This is our fourth podcast on the subject of living and photography in Navajo land. And we are going to talk about the non-judgmental aspects of Navajo culture and how that influences creativity in photography and in life in general. And in the other arts. And in the other arts, any right. medium. How is being non-judgmental important when you're an artist? Because in a way, if you don't judge your own work, you're more creative. Because you either can be creative or you can be critical, but you can't be both. And the minute you exert a judgment on something or someone, you're being critical. And that stops the creativity. Yes. It's hard to pass a judgment on something without passing a judgment on yourself, in a way. Right. If you're critical of other people's work, you're going to be critical of your own work. Right. And you can't be creative and critical at the same time. You can't say, I don't think that's good, and at the same time, try your best. You've got to let go. You have to be free, in a way. Free of criticism. Yeah. I also believe that you do not want to be around people that are very critical of you and your artwork. You need to surround yourself with artists that love your work and that feel the same way. So you need to surround yourself with other artists that support your work and encourage you to continue to do what it is that you're doing. The minute you have people that criticize your work or tell you that your work is not good enough or that you're not good or that they don't like it, then you're going to eventually stop doing artwork because you're going to get discouraged. Sure, because you want encouragement, you don't want critique. Right. Criticism is really the enemy of creativity. Either you're creative or you're critical. Right. And you don't want to be surrounded by critiques and you don't want to be critical yourself. There is a difference between trying to be your best, trying to excel, trying to reach a very high level of quality and being critical of your own style. Right. There's a difference because eventually progress in art is made through trial and error. You know, you try things. Right. And if you want to create something new, you have to try new things. Right. And if you're constantly worried whether people are going to like it or not, then you don't try new things. Yes. <laughs> you, you do things that you know people are going to like. Well, I know when I was teaching art, my students would ask me, well, what if I do this or what if I do that? And... I didn't know the answer most of the time, and I would say, I don't know. Try it and see what happens, and then decide whether you like it or you don't like it. Because, you know, it's your artwork. It doesn't matter if I like it or don't like it. Right, right. You know? And by doing that, you're encouraging them to not be critical of their own work, to not worry about the outcome. Mm -hmm. You can't worry about what other people are going to think of what you do, and at the same time, be 100% creative. Right. Because you're going to hold back. If you fear that somebody is going to pass a negative judgment on your work, then you're not going to do everything you can. You're going to hold back. Right. You're not going to try new things. You're not going to put a lot of yourself out there because you'd rather be criticized for something which is not you, right? Yes. You know? So that's when people focus on technique, for example. They try to be technically perfect because, in a sense, if you criticize technique, it's easy to fix. Just mm -hmm. have to learn to make a better print, for example. Or, right. Or learn to match the color more perfectly. You know, All of that is remediable because we can buy a machine to calibrate the printer. We can buy a machine to calibrate the monitor. We can learn how to 
color balance better, you know, all of that. But it's very different when you're looking at style. Right. And you're trying to create something totally new, which is you, you know, express something which is an emotional response. If you're going to be criticized, how do you correct that? You know, right. if somebody says, you know, I don't like the way you express your emotions in your photographs. What is it that you can improve? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you know, you can't buy your machine to help you <laughs> express your emotions better. Right. Right. You can't, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do. Right? right. You've put yourself out there. People don't like it. And it's just bad news. And that's it. The solution? Yeah, stop doing it. Right? Right. That's usually what people do. They stop doing it. They go back to painting little flowers because everybody's going to like them. Right. Know? And we know everybody loves irises. Everybody <laughs> loves irises. If you don't know what to sell. <laughs> what to paint. Or what to paint or what to photograph. Just photograph irises and sell them. You will do well. Because, you know, it's risk-free, right? Yes. So eventually what happens with people that are exposed to extreme criticism or that are fearful of criticism and have not found the solution, you know, they haven't been encouraged to be creative because they are surrounded by people that are very judgmental, is eventually their inspiration dries up. And if they haven't been creative to start with, then it never starts. Right. You know, they just continue being focused on the technical because if somebody says it's not sharp, well, guess what? You just learn to focus better. You use a tripod, you use a cable release, you use mirror lockup, you um, do all the things you have to do to get more sharpness. And that's not difficult because it's not you, right? It's the equipment. Right. But when somebody criticizes your style, well, you know, it's a problem, right? Especially when you're starting. Right. You know. And... That's one aspect I love about living on the Navajo Reservation. You know, when you started your artwork and you started photographing, and they encouraged you a lot. And I don't remember anybody saying anything right. negative. And then it was my very first teaching job. Well, know, the Navajos are non-judgmental. No. So they don't no. pass a judgment. And the thing that's really, really important to understand is that somebody who is judgmental passes a judgment upon others but also passes a judgment upon themselves. Right. You know, that is, a Navajo isn't going to say, what I do is no good. They are going to say, this is what I do. And, and they're going to they, explain it. Right. They are going to explain it. They are not going to pass a judgment upon themselves. At the same time, if somebody says, oh, what do you think of Alan's work? They are going to say, well, this is what he likes to do. Right. You know, he likes right. to photograph the landscape. They probably have their own opinion about whether that's something they would do or not, but they are not going to pass a judgment. No, you know? and they're going to explain to others what it is that you like to do and what you're trying to get across yeah. or express. Or I mean, we've yeah. had a very interesting situation with Travis. Uh, you know, Travis Terry, who recorded the Navajoland City, Music City, Native American flute, where one day he goes to his overlook to sell his work and he sees uh, a group of uh, tourists from Germany, I think. Yeah, or I can't remember the nationality, but they were not from the United States. And they are bathing naked into uh, a rain pool. One know, of those uh, temporary pools that form when yeah. it rains. And, you know, the Navajos don't strip naked. No, they're very modest. They're extremely <laughs> modest. They don't do that. They would never wash in a rain pool, a pool of rainwater, stark naked. Along but, Canyon de Chez. Right. So <laughs> this is something that they don't approve of. But right. still, he was not critical of them. He was not judgmental. He told us the story. He went to see them and he said, you know, what are you doing? And we say, well, you know, we've been traveling from Germany looking for this and we came to the reservation and we want to be ourselves. Right. And being ourselves means not having any of the trimmings of society. We just want to bathe We want to be free. <laughs> we want to let go of all you know, the things that control us, you know, uh, 
that hold us down and clothing is optional. And, and he said to them, he says, you know, I see your point, but around here, we don't do that. Right. You know, you're going to have to put your clothes back you're on. Have to put your clothes back on. In <laughs> other words, he never told them this is no good. Right. He never told them don't do that. He said, you no. know, we don't do this. And uh, exactly, we don't. Do- I suggest that you put your clothes back on. Yeah, and, and I just continue traveling. Uh, right. You know, through the reservation. You know, you're welcome, but have please a good trip. Respect our customs. You know. Right. <laughs> but it's not judgmental. No, no. And there is a fine difference here. Because a lot of people, you know, I remember we had a neighbor one time who told me, he says, uh, it wasn't particularly to me, it was to a group, he said, uh, Alan is critical of other people, right? That was a very interesting statement. <laughs> he said that to the group, we were having a, a sort of group party, and he said, Alan is critical of others. And I looked at him and I thought, you know, this is very interesting because what you're saying is being critical of others is not good, right? Right. And so I would assume that this is something that you wouldn't do yourself. Right. But at the same time, when you say Alan is critical of other people, it is a criticism of me and you made it. So you're critical of other people as well. Right. Right. At right. least you're critical of me. Right. So there is a lot of misunderstanding about what it is to not be judgmental. Yes. Know? Because if somebody says Alan is judgmental of others, well, that means you're judgmental yourself. The person who says that is judgmental himself. Right. Right. They just pass the judgment on me, and that judgment is that I'm judgmental, right? It's actually very difficult to fake. Right. Not being judgmental is not exactly something that you can fake. It's not really open to fakery, you know? It's not like you can say, you know, I'm going to have a meeting with this non-judgmental group, and I'm not going to be judgmental, right? right? You know what I'm saying? Right. Because it's so easy to sleep and to say, you know, I'm not sure that I like the way this meeting is going. Well, that's a judgment. Right. <laughs> you know, right? And if it's not a judgment on the person or on the group, it's now a judgment on the meeting, right? Right. You know, I'm not sure that that's the right building. Well, bingo, judgment again, right? I'm not quite sure that I like the time that we meet. Well, that's another judgment, you know? And a lot of people, when you go over that, you start to outline all the ways that we can pass judgment. People say, well, that means I can't take control of the situation, right? That is, what you're telling me is I can't say I don't like this time, I don't like this place. I can't say that I don't like anything, right? And to a large extent, that's true. Right. That not being judgmental is actually letting go of a lot of control. But it doesn't mean that you let go of all control because you control yourself, you know, as much as you want. You just don't have that much control over what others are doing. And I think that we see that a lot with uh, Navajo culture and Native American culture in general, that they don't really exert a lot of control over what other people are doing. No, they'll let you be. They'll let you be. And when they talk about other people, you hear things like, well, that's the way they do things. Right. Instead of saying, I don't like the time that this meeting takes place, if you say, well, what do you think of the time of the meeting? Let's say you have a Native American going to a meeting with you and you don't particularly like the time of the meeting and you say to them, well, what do you think of the time of this meeting? They won't say, I don't like it. They'll say, you know, that's the time at which we like to meet. Right. <laughs> you know, and that means that they may agree, they may disagree, but they are not going to pass a judgment. No. You know? And I remember you have one student who, you know, is dating a Native American woman, and he shows her his photography, and we were really interested in, well, what does she think? You know, what does she say? And he says, well, she doesn't really say much. What she asks me is, how do I feel about it? 
Right, you because know? she doesn't want to... Because she doesn't want to pass a judgment right. on his work, and so she mm. in turn will ask him, well, how do you feel about your work? And, right, because eventually know. it's not in her book. You know, It's not her responsibility to tell him what she thinks of his work. In a sense, she sees it as her responsibility to help him figure it out. You know, Right. And it was interesting because even before he answered, I... I knew that I knew what she had said. Right, we knew the answer. I don't know if I told him myself, but I knew that she would have told him, well, you know, how do you feel about what you're doing? Right. And if somebody else says, what do you think of his work? She'll say, the usual, he likes to do this kind of work. Right, <laughs> you know? right. That's the kind of work he likes to do, yeah. It's a deeply ingrained approach, and it's a true approach. They don't fake it. And no. you can't fake it. You really can't fake it, because by nature, you have to give up a lot of control. Yeah. And... That can be good news, that can be bad news. You know, it depends on your personality. But the bottom line is it suddenly puts less pressure on you. Yes, it does. Because if we go back to the example of the meeting and you say, you know, I don't like the time at which we meet. Well, what is the next thing? If somebody takes you seriously, they're going to say, well, what do you suggest? Right. What kind of time do you think we suggest we should meet? Well, now the responsibility is on you to get the group to agree to a new time so that it accommodates you and also accommodates them, right? <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Right. The new American that says, you know, that's the time they like to meet, in a sense, he's saying that's their problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they want to meet at that time. It doesn't really hurt me. Why not? Right. right. And they walk away free of the responsibility of having to set a different time and pleasing everybody and on and on. Right. I think a lot of stress comes from being judgmental. It does. And not being true to yourself and who you are. And that's what I. I learned that it was okay to be who I was and that they weren't passing a judgment on whether they liked me or didn't like me because they really wanted you and I and others that were living there. They want you to be who you are. They really want to see the real you. And the real you is great. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with the real you. What they don't want to see is all these barriers and all of these walls or facades that you put up in front right. of you. Well, I mean, obviously, in order to see who somebody really is, you don't want to be judgmental. Yeah. Because the minute you're judgmental... They're going to change their uh, behavior. Most people will. Not everyone. Right. But the majority of people will. Because most people want to, they want to fit in. Right? right. And so if there is too much judgment on them, they'll switch, you know, their attitude towards one that's more pleasing to the group. Mm-hmm. That's not everyone. The most rebellious personalities won't do that. But most people are not that rebellious and they will sort of form their behavior to match the group's expectation. Right. But there's another reality that causes stress and that is if you go to an artist's work and you say, you know, I really don't like this and I think you should stop, which is an extreme form of judgment. Oh, yes. You're not just saying, I don't like it. You're, you're telling them to quit. You're asking them to quit. You're demanding that they cease. You know, it's almost like a lawyer's asking to cease and desist. You know, right. don't do this anymore. Exactly. What that means to the person who expressed that view is that they expect absolutely nothing good to come from the artist that they criticize towards them. They only expect bad commentary from the artist. They only expect the artist to be pissed off. Right. That puts a lot of stress because you don't know that person, right? You, you meet them for the first time. You express a very negative view of the artwork. You ask them to stop. And now you know that if things go the way they should go, that person now doesn't like you. And nothing good can come, right? Because you did not leave the door open for a conversation. Right? No. 
And I think that that's one of the most damaging aspects in my book of uh, being judgmental. You do not open the door to a dialogue. Right. You actually close the door. You don't ask for the dialogue. You say, this is the way it is. You're not open. You don't care. You really don't care about the person's opinion. Right. I mean, I was taking the example earlier on about my parents that did not like me listening to certain songs, you know, rock and roll, because the words were sort of rude. Right. But they never asked me if I understood the words, and for the most part, I didn't. Right. They spoke English better than I did. They understood English better than I did. Right. And they understood the words, and obviously the words were not that courteous, let's say, right? She found them vulgar and rude. Yeah, but I did not understand the words. Right. And so my mother was like, don't listen to that. I don't want you to listen to that. Turn that off. Turn that off, you know, (laughs) short of basically... Taking it away from you. Taking it away or breaking it, you know, it never went that far. But if she had opened a dialogue, you know, why do you listen to that? I would have said, you know, I really like the sound, right? Right. Because in rock and roll, and I suppose in a lot of sung melodies, the voice is another instrument. And so you can listen to the sound of the voice without understanding the words, right? That's true. You take, for example, uh, a song like Neil Young, The Needle and the Damage Done, which is uh, on Harvest, you know, the original uh, Harvest record. And that song is about heroin addiction in New York City. But what attracts me to the song is the false high-pitched voice that Neil Young uses. Because Neil Young doesn't have a high-pitched voice. Right. has a, a relatively low voice, you know. Mm-hmm. But in that song, he uses a very high-pitched falsetto voice. And that's very attractive. Those are one of the reasons why I like the song. Right. It's not necessarily because he's telling me a story about heroin addiction in New York City. It's because the melody is, captures my attention. Right. Do I understand the words? I understand them now. Did I understand them the first time I heard it? No, I had no idea. Right. Well, when I was uh, teaching, I would play Sharon Birch in my classroom sometimes. And I just love her music. She sings in Navajo. And so I would sing along too. I mean, I had no idea what Sharon Birch was singing in Navajo, but my students, they loved it. The fact that I was singing, because I just, I loved her voice and the music and... So it's a perfect example of a voice and I that still to have you no idea. was attractive because of the sound, right? Not because of what she was saying, right? And you my know? students would yeah. just look at me singing in Navajo and smile. Yeah, plus you, you probably know? did not say the words that well, you know. Probably not, yeah. but that that doesn't matter to them. You don't have to understand the words of a song in order to like it, right? Because right. you can like it because of the rhythmic pattern. Mm-hmm. You can like it because of the sound. Right. You can like it because of the kind of voice. Well, and she know. has such a musical voice, right. you yeah. know. It's like listening to an ensemble. You don't have to understand what each instrument is doing right. in order to like the song, right? You know, I remember when we were little, you know, in school, we would go to a theater where there was a classical uh, orchestra and they would all play all of the instruments which is about a hundred instruments you may have 40 violins and you know who knows how many of the others and then we would learn to separate the different instruments they would each play their part right and after we had listened to you know the violin and the tuba and the saxophone and the drums and there was three sets of drums you know, in a classical uh, orchestra, some very large drums, some cymbals and some clear drums and whatnot. And then you listen to the bass violin, whatever, you know, the contrabass, you know, all of that, you know, and more, more instruments, the piano and whatnot. Then you're like, oh, now I can separate the sound. Right. And you listen to it again, and now you learn to enjoy it on a different level. Yes. Because now you're enjoying the play of the different instruments. 
But it's not like it's more enjoyable. It's differently enjoyable. I could enjoy it the first time just fine. Right. The second time, now I'm, I'm able to separate the sound. The same with singing. You can enjoy your song even though you don't understand the words. And that's one level of appreciation. Or you can learn the words and then appreciate it on another level. That's poetry. You take the example of the Beatles, uh, She's Leaving Home. There's a beautiful melody. And you can appreciate it as such. But if you learn the words, you know, and you study, you know, what is in effect a poem, and you study what they mean, and you pay attention to all of that, now you can appreciate it on the level of the meaning of the word. Right. right? The meaning of the, the story, you know, there is a story there. Right. But you can't really take the story apart at the same time as you listen to it, because the words go too fast. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily listening to every word. So there's different levels of understanding. All of that to say that if you don't open a dialogue with somebody and you just criticize their work, you're missing on that larger story. You know? Oh, you are. You, know? yes. you don't get the point. You're like, okay, I don't like your work. It's just horrible and please stop. What is there else to be done, right? The dialogue never started and is not going to stop. Right. Because even if the artist said, well, let's talk about it, somebody who is that adamant about asking somebody to stop doing what they are doing is going to look at the person and say, no, you don't understand. I don't care. Right. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> You know, so anybody in their normal mind wouldn't try. And if they tried, they're going to be shut down. That's why I think that, in a sense, being overly judgmental, you know, on things that are very deeply about another person, like their artwork or their creativity, is actually a form of violence, in a way. It's an act of violence. To ask an artist to stop what they're doing because you don't like it is actually a form of violence. What does it matter that you don't like what we do? You don't have to look at it, right? Right. You know, if it's a book, you don't have to read it. If it's a work of art, a, a visual work of art, you don't have to look at it. You know, if it's music, you don't have to listen to it. Why is it that you have to go as far as asking somebody to stop? Mm-hmm. Because you're violent in nature, I think. Criticism can take extreme positions. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, I think that what this leads to in terms of uh, conclusion is that Native American culture is a much softer culture when it comes to creating art. They are much more understanding of other people's vision, so to speak. You know, much more open to what other people's visions are. Right. And And you may not be able to express it the best visually, but they know that with time and with practice that you're going to get there, you know, so they're not going to put a judgment on the quality where they think you're at right now. Yeah, they understand that you don't become the best at what you do overnight. Right, (laughs) right. They're not expecting you to create a masterpiece right away. They're more interested in what it is that you want to express Mm -hmm. and what's behind, you know, all of that. Because in their mind, you're going to get to that place. You know, you're going to get there. Mm They know it's going to take They're time. interested in the vision more than in the exact form that the vision takes at the time. Right. And we saw some young Navajos do some pretty wild things. Yes. You know, and you look at them and you're like, my God, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that they are not being judged. Right. And so they feel free to do all sorts of things. And I think that it's only later on that, in a way, financial realities set in and they realize that certain things sound better than others. Yes. You know, but it's not because of lack of creativity that they do certain things. They have the creativity. I mean, we saw some do some extremely abstract things, you know. Oh, yes. Even yes. at Doreen's family, you know, when we went to our mother's house, 
there was some artwork on the wall that was really far out there. Her brother. Her brother. And he does some, really. He's also an art teacher, I believe, on the, uh, I think it's the Apache Reservation. And it's difficult to understand what they are doing if you are not open to whatever. Right. Because, you know, you look at the artwork and you're like, but you're a Native American, you're a Navajo, you should be doing Navajo traditional artwork. No, and they are not. no, he's doing some really yeah, well, he's doing yeah, something contemporary. Uh, and it's him, you know. It is and, him, and, yeah. And, and that's being judgmental to say, you know, but you're Navajo, you should be doing Navajo artwork. That's being judgmental. <laughs> it is. You know? And you have to let go of that, otherwise you can't access the artwork, you can't right. understand it, you can't appreciate it, right. you know. That's the only way possible. And I've, I've seen his paintings over the years, and he's getting better and better and better, you know. And he paints all the time. Because he doesn't get discouraged, because nobody's looking at him saying, no, stop. Right? No, no. I mean, his saying, whole family yeah. backs him up. Yeah, and, or yeah. simply looks at it and says that's what he likes to do, yeah. which is yeah. fine. You know, an artist doesn't have to have massive encouragement. Essentially, they need lack of criticism. Right. And I'm sure that he's a great art teacher because he's not going to have that criticism right. towards his students no. whatsoever. No, because he doesn't get in himself. Right. You know, he's not getting criticism and then it's not part of his culture. So he's not going to do it to the students. Right. Know? But an artist doesn't need to be told that they're the greatest artist in the world every single day. No. Or ever. No. They just need to not be told, A, that their work is no good and B, to stop. Right. If you just say, you know, it looks good to me. I like it. That's what you like to do. Keep going. That's it. That's all you need. Right. It doesn't require more than that. You know? Well, what I when I paint or when I draw, what makes me feel better and <laughs> helps me get rid of stress and pressure in my mind, I hear you always saying to me, it doesn't matter what you draw or what you paint. What matters is that you're just doing it. Don't worry about what the outcome is going to be. Right. Just do it. And, you know... If you want to be critical or put a judgment on your work, well, you can after the 100th painting. After you painted 100 of them, then you can uh, make a judgment on it. But until then, you know, you can't. And (laughs) the logic behind this approach is that if you wait until you have painted 100 paintings, and if you take photographs, it'd be more like take 10,000 or 100,000 photographs, because you can take a photograph much faster than you can make a painting. Right. The whole idea is that if you wait that long, you'll probably never do it. Right. Because by the time that you get to that 100 painting or 10,000 photograph or whatever number, you'll have forgotten about it. It will have moved out of you. Right. And so you'll never do it. You're going to be accepting of yourself. Yes. Because the problem of art is that when we paint, when we photograph, if we do it genuinely without fear, you know, and it comes from ourselves, not from trying to copy somebody else. Right. We are putting ourselves out there. We are. And if we are criticized, it's us who is criticized. It's not the artwork. Right. The artwork is us. So we are being criticized ourselves. And until we develop a thick enough skin to not take the criticism personally and not be discouraged by it, we're extremely vulnerable. Yes. And so if you learn to not do it to yourself, you at least control that part. You can't control somebody coming to you saying, I don't like it and please stop because it's driving me crazy, you know. Right. But you can control yourself. You can control not telling yourself that it's no good, right? Right. And then just painting and drawing. Yeah, and just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, just enjoy it. And 
you don't have to even worry about whether it's good or bad because that's just eliminated from your thinking. And it's never that simple. It's you never always, good or bad. Right. And you, you know. always say, just have fun. Yeah. Just have fun. You because, know? you know, art It's supposed not, to be fun. <laughs> right, art is not a black and white situation. It's not like, you know, I, I just read on the internet that they completed the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, you know. Well, a bridge can either be good or bad. <laughs> it works or it doesn't. Either it stands and we drive on it, or it collapses and the cars go down into the bay, right? If there's an earthquake, either the bridge stands the earthquake or it collapses, right? Right. But artwork doesn't have a functional quality. You know, it doesn't have to hold up to the pressures of atmospheric pressure. It doesn't have to function. It just has to, to be on the wall, right? Art doesn't wear out, you know, unlike a car. It doesn't have to have oil change. It doesn't have to have replacement of the shocks or tuning of the engine or doing the brakes or anything, you know. There's no wear and tear on artwork. You, right. know, you can buy art and have it for the next 50 years without doing a thing to it, and it's going to look exactly the same as it looked on the first day, unless it fades. And a lot of people don't understand that. And so they're like, is it good, is it bad? Well, it, good and bad applies to machines. It applies to things that have a function, things that have to do a job, you know. Right. If you buy a washing machine and it doesn't wash your clothes right, well, obviously it's bad. If it washes your clothes well, well, obviously it's good, right? But what about art? It's much more open to interpretation. You take cubism, well, if you like cubism, it's good. If you don't like it, it's bad. But, I mean, it really doesn't change anything to the artwork. It's not like we can say, well, it's bad because it's doing this to me. It's not doing anything. It's just being there. It's a perception thing. It's a matter of personal opinion. And to get a judgment on your artwork, asking yourself, is it good or bad, is terrible because you yourself, if you're honest with yourself, can't do anything except be yourself. And so if you say it's bad, you're saying you're bad, right? Right, yeah. right. You, know? you, you got to let it go. you got to just crank out the work. There's a lot of uh, art teachers that say that you should not even show your work before you've done a certain amount of it. And unfortunately, a lot of people today take one photo, then go to a teacher and say, what do you think? Well, what I think is you should take another thousand photos. Right. Know, right? And they put so much pressure on themselves. Yeah, the first photo yes. should be perfect or the 10th right. photo should be perfect. Right. right? And uh, I tell them, I say, go out and take another thousand and let's talk about it some more. You know? right. right. Because it's too early, you know. Right. You know, and they're like, I'm not talented and that's why my first photo is no good. No, you don't know what you're doing and that's why your first photo is not as good as it can be. Right. You know, get some confidence, get some practice and guess what? It's going to get better, you know. And it's true of everything. You know, the first loaf of bread that a baker makes is not that good. (laughs) No. (laughs) Right. The first steak that a butcher cuts is not that good because they're students. Right. But we tend to think of this procession as not having a learning period. Right. Well, there is a butcher school. There is learning a bakery curve, school. Actually, yeah. in France, I went to a labor work school, very high end. And there was a butcher, baker, another food trade school. Right. And so I was with the teenager butchers and the teenager bakers. And uh, <laughs> we were right. eating their products in the cafeteria. And it wasn't perfect. Right. <laughs> you know? And it, it's sort of enlightening because you're like, oh, my God, we all start at the same point. Nobody knows anything. Right. right? And, right. and it's refreshing because, you know, you're like, oh, wow. When I go to the baker and I have this perfect eclair, right, or I have this perfect baguette, that's because that person did not give up. They continued practicing because their first eclair, their first baguette was just something else. Right. <laughs> right? You know, 
So it's very important to not pass a judgment upon yourself and to instead think that time in art is the remedy to a lot of difficulties. Right. That time and practice and not giving up are really the remedy to a lot of things. So we're going to stop here for today. And in the next episode, we'll talk about another aspect of Navajo life and living on the reservation and photographing on Navajo land. And I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be, but I think it'd be interesting to have one on Navajo food. Oh, yeah. Because a lot <laughs> of people are sort of thrown back at uh, the kind of dishes that they prepare. And, oh, and yeah. The kind of food yeah. that they have. And uh, I think we were thrown off at the beginning. But once you get used to it, they have very good food. Yes, they so do. So I think that, I'm not sure if it's going to be the next one, but it's definitely going to be one in the near future in this series. Oh, yeah.